Yeah, let me know how it sounds on your side. Ready? Three, two, one. Perfect. Perfect? Perfect. <laughs> it always looks wow. like at least a second and a half delayed on my side. And then you're like, oh my God, that was so good. Well, it, 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 I mean, it is like a second delayed. Uh, but I am, you know, I was a little bit nervous coming back after like six months. Uh, but I feel so much better knowing that we can get that clap countdown for recording purposes uh done so perfectly the very first time yeah fuck the content as long as we get the clap synchronized don't care that's true and that's how that's how i think the fans feel too if there's any of them left after all this time it's been a long time since we recorded anything that that's a fact okay we recorded what was like 20 something episodes in a year and then nothing for six months it's okay. Do we owe the people an explanation? Yeah, I have an explanation right here. Um, so we've gone through two presidents, uh, two plus Proud Boys leaders, uh, which brings me to the reason we haven't been able to put out content in a while. Uh, the rumors are true. We were arrested for trying to stop the steal and uh, have been incarcerated. But um, our f faithful lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, was able to get us off and now we're back and producing content so um just tweet him your thanks you know he really he really deserves it he's had a rough couple months so for the past year past uh six months i've written a, sh a ton of intro topics i have 20 intro topics just sitting here but i did write a full one for today um we are now real bread tubers because we did take a really long unexplained hiatus. So we do have that little Boy Scout badge now. I've been taking a break from tweeting a lot and being on Twitter and online in general. Um, I have almost no social media, it's fantastic. But some notable things have happened. Uh, I did receive death threats for a, a few things on our Twitter. One was uh, making fun of Ben Shapiro for telling me not to sin in public. Then I'm like, I'm gonna sin extra hard for you this weekend and then a bunch of christians in his comments were telling me yeah you should kill yourself wait is that, that for is real? You didn't that's 100 percent for real i tried to find yeah. them but um he deleted them i wish i screenshotted them i can picture the exact profile picture of the guy who told me that um the my favorite one is um uh making fun of the u.s navy under one of the promoted tweets telling them i'd rather serve crack than serve in the u.s navy um that that one people enjoyed though um, except, except for the death threats and then making fun of Rush Limbaugh for being dead, which I personally took offense to because that's, that's hilarious. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, and also I did someone's, uh, calculus homework because they tweeted at me. So, uh, send me your math homework, I guess, if you're really, really struggling. Um, I'd love to help you out. Uh, I, how I can do your econ homework, but you will. Fail. That is, that is true. Um, the fact that Mark can do it, not that you will, you will fail. I've seen your econ homework, Mark. It's fantastic. It's not <laughs> I do. I don't fuck with pure maths, though. That's just math essays, and I had um, a hard enough time writing the script. It, it, it did take a little bit. And lastly, since we don't have a Patreon, I did want to shout out a few people for reaching out and making sure I wrote this script. So in no particular order, Ellie, Thinky in the Brain, Sawgrass Community Defense Fund, Dengis Khan, Hannah LGD, Myrtleson, SBM Paul, Zachary Fuck, Camo Libri, No Context 321, and finally our A1 Day 1 fan, since we had less than 1% of our current fan base, Harrison. 
I tried to find all the people who tweeted me like, "What the? What? Why aren't you? Why aren't you recording anything? Why aren't you reading stuff for me?" That's actually a that's actually a lot more people than I expected. That isn't even all of them. That's the ones I could find in a particularly lazy search through my mentions and Reddit mod mail, which I didn't know existed. <laughs> and uh, the first message I found was a guy saying like. Was it titled, Thank You for Getting New Mics? He's like, hey, guys, the first two episodes are absolutely unlistenable. Those were terrible. But good content, though. I was like, thank you. It's totally true. Uh, it's it's very accurate. It's totally true. And um, When a, a podcast is just sound, so sound quality is podcast quality. Exactly. Do you have any updates, Mark, before we... I have any... Updates? Any updates? Well, wait, wait. You, I mean, I, I can't... You have big updates. Personal life updates, at least. Oh, I mean, well, yeah, and and that all kind of has to do with like the six month hiatus as well. The the actual reasoning behind it, I I I kind of take most of the responsibility for that six month hiatus because at the time I was doing most of the script writing and 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 research and stuff like that, and I just hit a point in my life where I had a really hard time um, bringing myself to do it just because. Uh, through some through some developments, I found myself spending a lot more time working, uh, and then I also had to deal with moving, and and it's just one of those situations where you spend all this time on the clock, and then you get off, and and you have free time, and all the things that you want to do that you're passionate about, like this podcast, uh, just feel like more work, and 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 it's just. And so I'm still still working to get back into that groove. Alex has been so kind as to do as to do the job for this episode uh which allows us to bring some new content to you guys after 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 so much time away uh for which i thank him very dearly yeah he really thanks me for doing the episode i promised a year and a half ago (laughs) i wasn't gonna say shit i wasn't gonna say shit um but yeah yeah it's 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 good to be back in the recording seat and i am i won't say what it is yet because it's good to have things be fun surprises but I am working on a work and a person that you that you might not have heard of before, but that I think you'll be very interested in when you when you find out what it is anyway. So uh, we're looking forward to that. And I'm working on a person that you've definitely absolutely heard of, but uh, even though I'm going on vacation tomorrow, and because I fear if I stop, I will never pick up another book again. I got to keep this momentum going, you know. Do we want to hop into this? Let's fucking hop in. So, tell me a little bit about who we are talking about on this day. So, we are talking about Rudolf Rocker, who wrote Anarcho-Syndicalism, Theory, and Practice. Um, I'll get into a little bit of his biography in a second, but um, he actually, you know, fun fact that um, I'm not sure if I told you, he, a German Gentile, married a Jewish woman lived in new york city and um like me and my current partner now actually um and had a son named Furman. who stop shaking your head it's true it's a it's a cute fact um had a son who just died within the last like 10 15 years i think but has some of his paintings on display in um in the brooklyn museum of art which is true 
So a little oh, history yeah. right near us. So we can see paintings by, I'm sorry, do you, did his son do the paintings or did Rudolph do the paintings? Yeah, his son, Furman Rocker. I don't know anything about his political views. Um, he has like three sentences on Wikipedia. But um, his paintings are awesome. I would love to have one if they weren't incredibly, obviously expensive or not even available to buy. But they do look pretty cool. I did, I did enjoy them. Furman Rocker for anyone who cares. Champagne socialists upset more things aren't commodities. Oh, um, oh, like I'd like to have a I'd like to have a print. I mean, like I don't I don't give a fuck if it's the original yeah. or not, but they they they're beautiful, is what I'm saying. So I think the best quote to sum up this ideology comes not from Rudolf Rocker, but from Eugene Hins, as he says, "quote The councils of trade and industrial organizations will take the place of the present government, and this representation of labor." will do away once and forever with the governments of the past, unquote. No politicians, no state, and all workers are equal and allowed to live with dignity without compromise. But first, let's start off with a little bit about the author, again, Rudolf Rocker. Just to give a little historical context to everything we're going to talk about, the book was published in 1938 at the request of his friends in the Jewish anarchist movement. He got a few letters, which is for the uninitiated early 20th century version of Twitter mentions from his friend Emma Goldman's. In case you haven't heard of letters before. <laughs> yeah, no, it's been a minute since, oh my God, I actually wrote a letter this morning. I felt very trad. Yo, the longest, the, the, the hardest I ever got fucking owned in my entire life politically was by which I'm which I'm really ashamed to say because I hadn't mailed a letter in a really long time and I like forgot the details of like, of like what you do with certain things. Uh, like where you write certain things and so i asked him to remind me and he goes wait you don't know how to mail a letter i was like well it's been a while i'm just fuzzy on some details he goes i kind of get why the people on the left want the government to do everything for them (laughs) i was like i fucking hate you dude just i can google this shit i'm asking you for advice because (laughs) thought you were a nice person he also joined like a masonic temple of italians so i don't think he's um a person who's in a position to make fun of anybody well that's good though he's fighting the good fight against the talophobia i know i know dude people forget um that the i in lgbtqia stands for italian actually people forget that um so they wrote these letters saying that uh stop shaking your head at me they're saying like, hey, you got to write some of this shit down. Okay, you, you're you're speaking facts, but um, this is this is 1938. Information doesn't spread as quickly. You got to make a pamphlet at least, um, which that's a fun parallel to the birth of this script. You know, harassing um, creators to write stuff does actually work. Unironically, emotional terrorism works just like real terrorism. I hey, we're actually going to talk about um, real terrorists li- later in this episode. It really does have everything. Hell yeah. Um, even though he was a Catholic, he was heavily involved in the Jewish anarchist mo- movement, learning Yiddish, contributing to Jewish papers, and later representing Jewish anarchist groups at the International Anarchist Congress in 1902. We love a Jewish ally. He joined the Socialist Democratic Party at a young age, as well as Dajungen, or the Young Ones, as a response to Germany's recent, at the time, anti-socialist laws. Unfortunately, the intersection of European political turmoil of the 20th century and his radical action meant that he had to move around a lot. He left his home in Germany in 1892, but still participated in German politics, leading the libertarian opposition to the Nazi movement, joining the Free Workers Union of Germany, and contributing to the paper Der Syndicalist. 
Finally, he was forced to leave Germany completely as the Nazi movement grew in power. So where, where uh, do you know where he was kind of moving around to uh, in this time period? He, I know you said that he lived in New York for a little while. Yeah, he really skips around throughout this whole book. And I apologize through um, about the fact that we're going to skip around through time periods a lot in this episode. But he does not give a clear, he gives contrasting um, time periods as to where he was when. Like he left Germany and he like, then I lived in Britain for the rest of my life. But on a bunch of different sources online, I found that he did obviously move to New York City for a time period. And then he moved back to Germany later. So there's, there's a couple of different contrasting things considering there's a lot of online sources. Plus this is a primary source. So. Okay. I'm going to say he moved around a lot to really condense it. But um he did he did die in Westchester also. So he obviously left Europe. Westchester is just north of New York City for those of you who don't. Yes, know. but it's not upstate New York. That's also very important. It's it's New York purgatory. It's not New York City. It's downstate. It's, that's not a word. Anyway, <laughs> the the literature we're going to talk about today specifically uh, was meant to be written in a voice that the average person could understand, which is part of the reason I'd recommend it as an inspirational work. This doesn't mean necessarily that he neglects complicated terms or glosses over too much dense history, but the prose he writes with makes it very easy to get, you know, really riled up and emotional and excited. And I was I was absolutely jazzed by some of the things he wrote. And I've included a couple quotes there, but I had to cut out a lot, obviously, so the script could be 6,000 words instead of 10,000. Let's get into some of the basics first. So of anarcho-syndicalism. At its core, it starts with the socialist idea that workers can and should control the means. And then it bolsters this idea about association among workers, their participation in government or lack thereof, and the role of the state. Free association of production is based on cooperative labor exclusively for the purpose of necessary requirements for the survival of everyone in society. Uh, I'm assuming this also extends to making entertainment products, but this isn't specifically alluded to. And you'll find this idea in other works, such as Kropotkin, who we're going to talk about a little in this episode as well, with the idea that first you must secure your daily bread before really doing anything. But that also that really once we once we secure the daily bread, there's actually quite a bit of extra time and effort we can put into the other things. Oh, no, exactly. And he talks about things later that we're going to talk about in this episode that have to be a precursor to any um, revolutionary socialism for the post-revolution to actually work at all. And yeah. So he says, quote, people forgot that industry is not an end in itself, but should be only a means to ensure to man his material substance and to make accessible to him the blessings of a higher intellectual culture. Where industry is everything and man is nothing begins a realm of ruthless economic despotism whose workings are no less disastrous than any of those of political despotism. So you can't really start uh, thinking about theory at all. You're not going to read theory when you're just really trying to survive every day. When you're um, caught up in a cycle of wage slavery, you're going to be exhausted trying to live, let alone organize, which is what um, a lot of economical despotism relies on. Yeah, and of course that quote isn't prescient at all because nobody today struggles with the idea that the economy is supposed to be for people and not just like a thing that exists for its own purposes. 
No, exactly. Why Why should something that everyone participates in and dedicates most of their waking hours to serve everyone? That's patently ridiculous. ridiculous. So anarcho-syndicalism advocates for the abolition of economic monopolies as well as all political and social coercive institutions. You're going to hear that a lot. Uh, this guy really hates electoralism. You think people on Twitter hate electoralism when Noam Chomsky says, hey, guys, vote. Get ready for this guy. Uh, and if this sounds like libertarian socialism to you, you are absolutely not crazy. Um, there's the Venn diagram for, for these two things is almost a circle, but not really. The differences hinge on a, the association of workers. So while all anarchists could be considered to have libertarian ideals, not all libertarians could be said to have anarchist ideals. While the practices of libertarian socialism could take the form of minarchism or the absolute bare minimum of state power required for society to theoretically function, anarcho-syndicalism wholeheartedly rejects anything to do with electoral politics, let alone state power. And uh, anarcho-syndicalism might be considered a subset of libertarian socialism. And Mark is laughing at me because I made a typo and I wrote monarchism instead of minarchism, which is two, two, two of the most opposite things you could ever imagine. Well, there's, you know, there, there's, there's anarcho-monarchists these days. Shut up, J-Reg. Is, is that a J-Reg meme? Am I, or am I crazy? I think, I think it's like anarchists in the UK who still want the queen to be a thing. Yeah, I mean, the, the royal family is fun, would be fun if uh, they weren't so racist and um, enjoyed covering up pedophiles. Other than that, you know, they, they seem like uh, uh, nice people with corgis. Everything about that aside. <laughs> so, regarding societal beliefs, Rocker outlines his beliefs as antithetical to the function of a capitalist society. Capitalist monopolies are fueled by pitting classes internally against themselves and by squashing all forms of social expression to fuel a mindless machine. War also keeps classes preoccupied fighting external enemies that are more than often than not displayed as caricatures of who they truly are yeah if you watch the news like talk about uh like foreign policy and whatever like you always notice that the words that they use to refer to actions by a foreign power especially one that's deemed to be like an enemy are very fundamentally different from the words that are used to describe the exact same kind of action uh when it's done by the united states or u.s ally yeah, it's it's funny how um, economic sanctions uh, from China to the U.S. are considered violence when U.S. economic sanctions against third world countries who otherwise wouldn't survive without our economic corporation cooperation are uh, considered necessary. So Rocker says, quote, just as the state presents only a caricature of genuine society, so also it makes of human beings who are held under its eternal guardianship merely caricatures of their real selves by constantly compelling them to repress their natural inclinations and holding them to things that are repugnant to their inner impulses. Unquote. So next, we're going to take a step back here and go through how Rocker's beliefs relate to that of other philosophers we've covered or that you may have heard of. As a libertarian, Rocker wasn't fully on board with the ideals of all early communist anarchist philosophers. While he agreed with people like William Godwin, who believed that social harmony could only be achieved when no one person could economically exploit anyone else, 
he believed that using that theory to justify the existence of a state was wrong. Therefore, the only valid solution is the social ownership of all wealth, in Rocker's view. He also agreed with Proudhon that work should not be a tool of exploitation, but the value of work completed should be determined by the time spent to complete that work, which would completely level income inequality. In terms of land redistribution, he cites Bakunin as he advocates for the collective ownership of land and all other means. Additionally, Rocker says that the right to private property should be restricted to the product of individual labor. I think there might be a little mistranslation here because that's directly what he said. And what we might refer to today as personal property, um, he, he, he says he, he would call private property. Um, and so can you explain a little bit of, of the distinction between those things? Yeah. So traditionally, um, private property is defined as something that may be used to generate capital and um, someone who may allow others to use it in a coercive manner to generate capital for the owner that doesn't end up being theirs. You might you might work in a factory making a bunch of t-shirts and the owner of the factory might sell those t-shirts for $100 each and you might get a dollar of that while they keep the other 99. It's property that makes you money. Property that makes you money. Thank you for summarizing that because I was going on a tangent. And then personal property is like your toothbrush. Exactly. And that we all share after the revolution. One toothbrush for all of America is, um, is the platform I'm running on. When it comes to Marx, uh, Rocker does have some pretty big issues. He takes aim mainly at the concept of a dictatorship of the proletariat, claiming that it is absolutely not necessary um, to have that as a transitional step to realizing an equitable society. He believes that at most a government could exist temporarily once it has relinquished the recognition of any special rights, and its only real function is temporary distribution of what the workers have created or maintaining an equitable dis- distribution of the daily bread. He also purports that economic liberation is not equivalent to social liberation. For example, he cites prison as an economically equal playing field. However, within a prison, there are still social hierarchies and moral rules that inmates are bound to whether they like it or not. Socialism will be free or it will not be at all. He also compares the existence of a state to an organ in the body. Of course, throughout your life from a baby to an adult to a senior citizen, it'll change throughout your life, but you cannot force it to. It it just happens naturally. On the flip side, he also doesn't see anarchism as a perfect solution to all problems, which I think is kind of fair. You know, he's he's yeah. That's the thing that always pisses me off is that I feel is that is that I feel like uh, a lot of the criticisms that like get levied at uh, people all across the left is like, well, like what if somebody like just gets mad about someone and tries to like murder them? What do you do about that? And it's like, well, that's it's going to happen. Like I don't know. Like that happens now. Yeah, that's. Yeah, well, it happens now, and um, whether whether you go to jail for 20 years or do 300 hours of community service, more often than not will depend on your wealth. So maybe do some thinking about that before you ask that stupid-ass question. We should all be poor and all go to jail. Oh, I like that. <laughs> you made me lose my place, shit. I'm so sorry. I'll forgive you. 
so he did consider, while he didn't consider anarchism to be a perfect solution to all problems, of course, he definitely considered it a trend as we continue a capitalist existence. True freedom, he says, is independence from all religious and political entities to develop what natural talents you have. Not everybody's going to be good at everything. There are some things that people are just better at than others, but that doesn't mean they should have different rights or be left to not live with dignity. Specifically, he states that culture thrives best when political uniformity is kept to a minimum. And while I'm not sure really how diverse he wants political opinions, I don't think we tolerate fascism or anything like that. But uh, based on all the leftist infighting we see today and the fact that there is no real true unified left at all. Based on based on our experience writing this podcast, it doesn't seem like it ever really was a thing. I don't know. We haven't really received too much hate mail. Send us more hate mail, please. Yeah. Isn't, isn't, isn't that how to blow up? We got to create controversy. Okay, what's our controversy going to be for this episode? Uh, the Catholic Church did nothing wrong. Oh, God. <laughs> oh. I don't want to be famous for this. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, no, we, 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 we condemn the Catholic Church and all of their uh, misdoings, which of which there are many and of which are obvious. So the birth of anarchism, to get back to what we really want to talk about here, Rocker claims comes from the fact that, quote, power operate, operates only destructively. It's only expression being dead dogma, meaning power only operates to suppress, not to bolster anything. Next, we're going to dive a little bit into the sorts of laws and subsequent political repression throughout history that led Rocker to these beliefs. We see the rapid industrialization of the West in the beginning of the 19th century fuel an increase in national wealth at a similar rate. But of course, as still exists today, this wealth was confined to a small minority of citizens. The Enclosure Acts, which lasted 300 years beginning in the 1600s in England, was one piece of legislation that allowed manorial lords to privatize farmable land that had previously been collectively owned and farmed by peasants. This resulted in tenant farming at best, uh, which would be like which would be just farming a small fraction of the previous land and uh, giving all of that all of your all the things you produced to the lord, which actually owned your land, and you wouldn't get to decide how it's distributed, sold, or keep a, a majority of it. So serfdom, but capitalist this time. Yes, correct. And this started the kind of cyclical poverty that was later taken advantage of by religious child labor laws, um, even today, not in uh, many first world countries, but definitely in the third world. And the second law I wanted to talk about is the Poor Law of 1834, which suppressed monasteries in England. At the time, right before this, monasteries spent a third of the tithes, uh, tithes being um, your 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 weekly giving to the church for, for the non-Christian, you know, they pass around a plate, everyone chucks money in it, um, as well as donations. They took a third of that, and they were legally obligated to use that money to assist the poor, which sounds great. Also, I did, I spent like two hours trying to research um, taxation laws uh, from the 17th century about monasteries to find out if they were tax-exempt. Obviously, I couldn't, I couldn't find Jack. So if you're wondering that too, 
uh, feel free to research it on your own and let me know if you find whether they were tax exempt or not, as they are today, at least in America. If you study history professionally or anything like that, why are you listening to this podcast? You probably know more than us. <laughs> That's also true, <laughs> especially me, who's uh, historically illiterate, as has been proven many times on this podcast. The original poor law in 1601 allowed those who had fallen on hard times to seek help from these monasteries, and the monasteries, again, were legally required to help those who were destitute and local to them. So the poor in your area, the monasteries were required to supplement their, their survival. What changed was now the responsibility is 100% on the individual, which meant that they were going to workhouses, which more accurately could be described as work jail. The logic of this law followed the ideas of the Malthusian principle, which is the idea that because the rate um, at which people were having kids increases exponentially over time while production is linear, therefore, we should have no obligation to help another person because people are just going to be having more kids as they, as they theoretically increase in wealth. You know, as, as production increases, the uh, people think that, okay, it's going to everyone, everyone's getting wealthier, but it's actually just a small minority. And these people can't actually, um, unfortunately, afford to have the kids that they're having. Yeah. And, and we've talked about Malthus before on this show, and I feel like it does need to be repeated that he's wrong empirically when he says that. Uh, he's one of those guys that was, that made, that made up a bunch of shit off the top of his head and we still like base a lot of our politics on some of the things that he said, even though it wasn't even like a bad idea. It was like empirically wrong. I won't give into all the reasons why this is of course incorrect and obviously void of any moral fiber. But the point is that the wealthy were more than happy to adopt this way of thinking. The workhouses that I mentioned separated families, only permitting them to see each other at designated times. They had at the time worse foods than actual prisons and Weirdly enough, um, this caused a big problem with child suicide, to which I'm sure the bosses of these houses offered their deepest condolences, thoughts, and prayers. The once proud class of individual artisans dissolved into uniform wage slavery. It's the kind of social and economic uniformity that Rocker talked about in the beginning. The age of artisans maintained a supply historically of less than demand to safeguard themselves from any kind of economic downturn. So they didn't overproduce uh, and let things go to waste and they're, they're always safeguarded. However, when you're using machines to do all this work and when you're in a factory, these can be uh, used to speed up production many times over. And overproduction, of course, is going to occur when you're trying to sell as much of a good as you possibly can at any time. You're always going to want to have a ready supply. As the free market takes its course and production is going to have to stop for a period of time because you've overproduced, this is always going to be at the expense of the workers, not the bosses who own these, own these factories. And the final and most important law I wanted to discuss is the Combination Acts passed at the end of the 17th century. After demands had been made for the state to regulate working hours instituted a minimum wage or just offer any sort of protection to the working class, the Combination Acts were passed to make trade unionism illegal. So no freedom of association, at least when it um, revolves around worker power. You're free to make me money. <laughs> uh, this, 
this didn't end up actually stopping worker organization. They just had to be quieter about it. I mean, fuck it, right? If you're going to end up in a nurtured servitude, regardless, then what do you really have to lose? Secret societies eventually started doing some good old-fashioned violence because the trade unions just went underground, right? They would disguise themselves under the idea that they were mutualist organizations and then just advocate for themselves in, in, in private. They're like, oh, we're just like, um, we're, we're just giving, giving food to poor families. We're helping people to not die and survive. Um, but secretly, they were advocating for themselves and organizing. So mutualism in this context just refers to kind of like charity work, mutual aid. Yes, correct. At least as I understand um, how Rocker put this in, in his text. Okay. However, these secret societies eventually started doing some good old-fashioned violence after their peaceful demands for things like I mentioned before, minimum wage regulated working hours. Um, they also just wanted maybe women and children to be treated like people. Uh, after that went unheard, um, a lot of arson and destruction of property occurred, but um, it was a little more strategic than you might think. Groups of workers would literally destroy machines, specifically looms, used to make clothing, just by just by smashing them, uh, which led to the death penalty for destroying a loom. 18 workers who were leaders in this movement were hung, and others were deported to Australia. Anti-union laws were repealed in 1824 only in name, but uh, anti-union violence on behalf of the state continued. So legally, they're not allowed to, but um, cops weren't following the law for some reason, which has obviously not continued to this day. The Chartism movement that followed, which got its name from the People's Charter, which is a piece of pro-working class policy at the time, uh, convinced both sides that civil war is imminent, resulting in both sides having a little mini arms race, um, or at least just arming themselves. Rocker summarizes this beautifully, stating, quote, New worlds are not born in the vacuum of abstract ideas, but in the fight for daily bread in that the hard and ceaseless struggle which needs, which the needs and worries of the hour demand just to take care of indispensable requirements of life, unquote. No amount of theory is going to spur you towards revolution like living under the boot of capitalism, which there are conspiracy theories about, which I'm honestly, I'm a little convinced by that the specifically within the U.S., the production of corn is supplemented so that everyone can absolutely be fed because hungry workers will not revolt. I mean, is that really a conspiracy theory? That's just... I mean, it's not explicitly outlined saying like, yeah, we're, we're making sure um, cheap, unhealthy food is available so you don't revolt. It's not explicitly said, so I'm, I'm going to consider it a conspiracy theory still, but I feel like it's kind of almost obvious at this point. I think that's pretty... Yeah, that just seems... I mean, even if even if you were, like, a good-hearted leader, you would want to make sure your people were fed so they didn't revolt. Yeah, no, I'm I'm, I'm um, exercising the most caution possible when, when saying that... When, when saying that's not explicitly true. After the Combination Acts were repealed, workers realized that individualized unions by themselves were not going to be enough to get the labor movement where it needed to be. Rocker talks a lot about the struggle for daily bread, and I think it's interesting how that idea has taken shape over the years as we see that certain things are absolutely able to be provided by the government. 
19th century factory workers could never have dreamed of modern medicine, let alone a government that would provide it to them by virtue of their existence, as we see with the NHS right now. For now. <laughs> Stop. I, a, man, a man can hope. Even even in the U.S., we, we all got our COVID vaccines for free, and we can only imagine how horrifying that would have been. If they weren't free? Uh, if they, like, a- applied market forces to the COVID vaccine. Yeah, dude, imagine imagine if there was a billionaire who owned um, office software who didn't let this patent be distributed to third world countries and instead um, tried to make as much money as he possibly could after, even though he's one of the 10 richest people in the world. Would never happen. Is totally crazy, and the guy would definitely never be named Gil Bates. But um, we, we don't know. We don't know. There has to be a worldwide pandemic first before we could see something like that. And with with this, it's just hard. It's just nice to see any sort of progress in 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 the world, which is something I wrote down here, but absolutely in um, opposition to what I just said. <laughs> uh, so following the influences and propaganda of Robert Owen and the passing of the Reform Bill of 1832 in the early 1830s, the Grand National Consolidated Trade Union of the Forerunners of Great Britain and Ireland, or much better uh, summarized as the GNC, was founded. As an aside, this... Ref- Leftists are so bad at naming things. Dude, even, even their names are long, just like their memes and really any of their so bad yeah thank god twitter limits us to 140 characters but we still just say f you and do that and and make threads anyway as an aside this reform bill was meant to expand the electorate and give voting rights to common people but that really of 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 course it's the 1830s that really only included landowning males of course the workers felt betrayed by this because the tiny plots of land on the manor that they were bound to was not really represented in parliament meaning all the farmable plots of land were owned by um, manorial lords and anything that the peasants could possibly own themselves was not ideal it was like like cliffside very tiny strips of land that were not ideal for farming and you know sometimes dangerous anyway The GNC tried to consolidate all labor organizations in Great Britain and Ireland into one. The goal wasn't to make demands to politicians, which had mostly been abandoned after the reform bill was passed. They they were like, this is this is fruitless. We're not getting anything from electoralism and uh, even even trade unionism. But this was simply to assist with the struggles of daily life and securing a dignified existence for workers which the ultimate goal being co-ops and the abolition of capitalism, which, you know, simple enough. Theoretically, all trades would have their own federation and self-regulate under the GNC's ideals. Products would be, quote-unquote, sold at cost in a labor bazaar, uh, plus the cost of administration, which would have been the same as worker wages, meaning administrators would have been paid the same as worker wages, um, and goods would have been sold at the cost to produce them. The land stolen from the workers through the Enclosure Acts and legislation like it uh, would be co-owned equally by local unions, so equitable distribution of social wealth. Now, let's dive a little into more about how unions would function as a collective in the current state of affairs, which the GNC talked about and we're going to talk about 
with the first and third international later. Unions, of course, have to have each other's backs. When one union strikes, other unions of different trades should increase demands for the products of striking workers, putting pressure on bosses. Each union or trade would also establish a depot, more like a store, where other working members, assumed, assuming that they are part of these brother unions, could purchase their goods at wholesale prices, like we mentioned previously. Within this ideology, there is also no need for political institution anymore. Rocker says here, quote, The wealth of a nation is no longer determined by the quantity of goods it produces, but the value each individual derives from them, unquote. Therefore, excess products or um, uh, excess wealth are completely unnecessary. And this is the this is the ideal of what of how it should work. Yes, yes, theoretically, in theory, not necessarily in practice, because there's only really been one sort of example uh, with the CNT that we're going to talk about later in this episode. Um, but ideally, this is how this is um, a way that it would work together. The GNC was later denounced by the bourgeois press as criminal out of fear and unions became illegal in England with the punishment being banishment to Australia that I talked about earlier. Now, in France, before the Great Revolution, there had been compagnonages. I just looked up a video on the pronunciation. I still can't do it. Uh, Compagnonages. I apologize to our French listeners. Where nomadic craftsmen would pledge allegiance to one another, striking and boycotting to protect each other. In 1790, all citizens were granted the right to free combination. And again, this is all in England. They were granted the right to free combination, which I personally took to mean, like what we call, in the U.S. at least, the freedom of association. Uh, This scared the living shit out of employers, so they went to the state to demand protection against this quote-unquote new tyranny. Uh... Calling it a state within a state, these combinations were then prohibited until 1864, resulting in the secret organizations I talked about previously. The organizations were, again, permitted to exist under the guise of mutualist organizations. They were, on the surface, harmless, but they were actually revolutionary groups operating in secret. Next, the founding of the International Workmen's, Working Men's Association, or what we might call the First International was the first attempt to bring together all of these pro-worker organizations of different countries. The First International actually agreed upon a resolution parallel to these ideas that as soon as a trade union was formed, their next step should be to form alliances with other trade unions so that national alliances can be formed. Worldwide collaboration among trades is extremely important if you want to promote anarcho-syndicalist policies to their full potential. Higher wages might be possible for the workers of a trade in a consumer-heavy country, but it's not all sunshine and daisies. If you get higher wages, that might be at the expense of workers of the same trade in another country who used to export that good. You will be paid higher wages, but they'll pay for it with unemployment and a lower standard of living, which is why international alignment is important. This resolution at the First International also came with the idea that as monopolies of property are to be abolished, monopolies of power should be dealt with similarly. This way, no career politicians can weaponize the movement to their advantage, only to later dilute the movement into something that could be just completely ineffectual. 
Famous philosophers of the time, of course, had varying opinions on this resolution. Marx specifically recognized the benefits of trade unions in a capitalist society, but of course believed that they would fall away with capitalism and would have no use under a dictatorship of the proletariat. Bakunin, who we talked about earlier, also said that when all industries are equally represented in the international, then its work towards organization will be complete, which is totally fair. This especially includes agriculture, which you shouldn't, don't complain about farmers with your mouth full. My grandma had that as a magnet on her fridge, and I always thought it was nice. As someone who's the, the grandson of a, of, um, a farm-heavy family. Unfortunately, both the spirit and statutes of the international were violated, Rocker says, by Marx and Engels when they attempted to align national federations to sources of parliamentary power. This was resisted by all libertarian sections of the international, especially because this movement had never been posed uh, to a Congress to be debated, um, but we'll talk about all the Congress drama a little bit later. When discussing specific objectives of anarcho-syndicalism, Rocker cites a proverb, who eats of the Pope dies of him, to relate to the idea that being at all reliant on the state to make change crushes the spirit to do anything yourself. And if one relies on the state for too long, that it is possible to do anything yourself. I'd relate this to how Marx and Angela Davis spoke of religion as, quote, an opiate for the masses. That you have no power now, but it will be all right eventually. The state will take care of me eventually, just like I will get to a beautiful afterlife eventually after I die. Both are out of my hands, so it's useless to try to improve everything. Um, I just have to suffer, and then I'll be rewarded later. It'll be fine. I, I cannot do anything. Bit by bit, you'll be forced to concede or dilute your positions to those palatable by the state. If there is no outside pressure and movement behind parliamentary legislation, then it has no legs. Powers of the state are only as progressive as they're forced to be. And again, I'm going to include another quote from Rock, because I just, I love his writing. Quote, In the field of parliamentary politics, the worker is like the giant Antaeus of the Greek legend, whom Hercules was able to strangle in the air after he had lifted his feet off the earth who was his mother. Only as producer and creator of social wealth does he become aware of his strength. In solidaric union with his fellows, he creates in the trade union the invincible phalanx which can withstand any assault, if it is aflame with the spirit and animated by the ideal of social justice. Unquote. Something that I think answers a lot of questions from reactionaries um, that they often have with anarchism and socialism in general is how Rocker defines trade unions. The trade union, also referred to as a syndicate, has two unwavering principles. The first is to be a force of protection for the workers, something that I think most everyone can agree upon. The second is to educate the workers in technical and economic management of their respective industries. If a revolutionary situation arrives, they'll need to be ready to take over the work of their former bosses. I think this also circumvents one of the more common responses to pro-worker ideologies. Oh, but bosses do they do important work too. They can't function without them. Correct. People are needed to oversee and manage the supply chain from a high level because they're not preoccupied with individual production. They, they, they have a little bit more time to see where things need to go, where um, R&D money might need to go to improve products, uh, working conditions, and safety. 
but these people don't deserve to be paid five times more than the people working. Okay, it's all it's all the same work. It's all required to function. And that's assuming that the boss does actually do any work, which like if you're the owner of like whatever the means of production are in question, like you actually don't have to do any work if you don't want to. Yeah, I'm probably giving Alem a lot more credit than they deserve, but um yeah, at 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 best, um they they do do some good work, but it again it's not it's not worth five five or multiple times more than anybody else's or even any more times more three decisions a day uh, isn't that what it is that a bezos thing does isn't that what he yeah, does that's a bezos thing he says he makes three decisions a and he day. like doesn't make any decisions before 11 a.m no he only he only he has all of his big stuff before 10 or 11 and he only makes three big decisions a day man i would love to not work after 11 a.m that sounds so nice. Oh, okay. Let's now compare anarcho-syndicalism to other common philosophies of the time. We've done it with philosophers. Now let's do it with philosophies. For example, centralism is a top-down approach which takes the needs of everybody lumped together and then slowly pushes the most derivative form of those needs through a grueling bureaucratic process that crushes any sort of individual spirit. So basically, Rocker's not a fan. In contrast, anarcho-syndicalism is a bottom-up approach based around federalism that upholds the right of the individual of self-determination above all else, only recognizing that which is agreed upon organically. However, federalism is also charged with the idea that organized resistance is stifled this way, and Rocker brings up Hitler's rise to power as an example of centralism doing just that. German Democratic and Communist parties rallied 12 million voters for the election, but nobody was able to organize effectively to stop Hitler's regime from violently crushing pro-worker organizations. Under anarcho-syndicalism, trade unions from the city and rural parts of the land organized into a labor cartel, which provides a localized central hub for education and propaganda and to ensure the workers are united and no one's breaking off to start a movement of their own, that everyone in the area has their ideas adequately represented. The free press is also vital to the success of an anarcho-syndicalist ideology as they hold the worker councils accountable. All, organ all labor under the system is also voluntary, following the idea that people will want to work for the benefit of their fellow human. This rings very similar to Kropotkin's ideas about compulsory labor when he writes about anarcho-communism. Compulsory labor disconnects the worker from their community, takes the joy out of work, and doesn't allow them to feel any sense of personal responsibility to their fellow worker. You're going to take a lot more pride in your work when you're doing it for your neighbor down the street rather than doing it for shit wages for someone you'll never even meet to generate money that you'll never even see. Finally, we'd be remiss to make an episode about anarcho-syndicalism and not talk about Catalonia and the CNT, the, or the Confederación Nacional de Trabajo. The CNT was probably one of the more famous examples of worker power that we have in the relatively modern era. During World War I, worker syndicates of Catalonia supported the war effort to protect their fellow comrades, not, not because they were... Um, not because it was compulsory to work in these factories to produce war materials. Workers in factories work 12 to 14 hours a day very willingly to keep 
the front lines supplied. Their effort in a proportionally way smaller country was staggering, like per person in compared as compared to Western countries. Also, because Catalonia had a significant role in the development and practice of anarcho-syndicalist policies, I did want to mention a cool quick side note. As part of Operation Fortitude in World War II, a Catalonian double agent codenamed Garbo gave the Germans false information to divert larger forces of their troops during the invasion of Normandy. He created an imaginary network of 27 subordinates, and the Germans not only paid him to do all of this, but he kept up his, um, his facade so long that he was awarded the Iron Cross because they didn't realize he was just fucking with them. And uh, he remains the only person to receive uh, medals from both sides in World War II, which I thought was pretty sick. I believe, yeah, I believe he also he also got the um, Victoria Cross. So it's like you got two medals. You could of say you, you could say he he double crossed them. That is <laughs> good wordplay. Honestly, that works great. I'm not a rapper. I know we've talked. A lot of shit about electoralism, but it would be incorrect to say that an anarcho-syndicalist takes absolutely no interest in parliamentary politics of their area and time. Fighting for your daily bread when denied and spreading propaganda in favor of your fellow proletariat is at the core of your anarcho-syndicalist beliefs. It's also very obvious that anarcho-syndicalism would be a very pro, pro-gun ideology, Zwacker states that any and all political rights do not come from a parliament, but only when the populace is ready to meet any violation of those rights with violent resistance. Lack of participation in parliamentary politics doesn't mean that they don't care about the rights of workers that are being slowly pushed through the bureaucracy of the time, but just that their efforts are better spent elsewhere. Uh, like, basically, you can take 20 minutes out of your day to do even perceived harm reduction because that's 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 the best use to, of, of your efforts don't he's saying don't necessarily go door knocking for your favorite candidate but you know just fucking fucking vote like your efforts would be better spent um uh donating to mutualist organizations or protesting or something like that rather than door knocking or whatever not that that's a totally horrible thing but it's rocker's view I think this can be easily demonstrated by our current administration in the U.S. throwing its hands up at any sign of resistance to what they want. Efforts for legislation to end qualified immunity, stop the Dakota Access Pipeline, mandate the payment of a livable wage, or protect reproductive rights, all stymied in the name of political civility and for what? Rocker doesn't respect any formal process to obtain human rights, preferring instead to keep those in power on their back foot until they're ultimately ousted. Make them scared. For example, in Prussia in 1932, a center-left coalition of social democrats, liberals, and at the time the Catholic Center Party had ruled as a group since 1918, but lost their majority in 1932. And in the midst of the attempt to form a new government, uh, Franz von Papen, in order to facilitate Hitler's rise to power, which he did not because he necessarily wanted Hitler to rise to power, but he saw the only two paths forward being either Nazi rule or a military dictatorship. And he's like, okay, I can, I can probably control Hitler. Um, von Papen had uh, 
Reich President Hindenburg appoint von Papen emergency chancellor of Prussia. This center-left parties only appealed to the higher courts instead of meeting the coup, which was later instated, with violent resistance, as they obviously should have. And even when the decree was partially declared unconstitutional, von Papen even remained in control of Prussia. And we all know how uh, Germany in 1932 ended. They made the trains run on time. I... Yeah, we, we, we all know what happened there. Um, and unfortunately, von Poppen was tried at Nuremberg and unfortunately acquitted. But we're going to call him a bitch on this podcast because he is. And that's 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 enough punishment. The anarcho-syndicalist has a lot of weapons at their disposal. We're going to talk a little bit about types of strikes here. Obviously, we have the strike. Um, the, the general strike, which is goes from a single factory strike to a general strike being the most popular tool. But this does have a number of permutations. The sympathetic strike occurs when certain branches strike in favor of others, be they the same trade or not. The inverse of this is called the restricted strike, in which those only strike for interests that directly benefit them. We hate that. The general strike is the sympathetic strike at its apex. Called General Madness and Utopian in the 19th century. This was later disproven by the Italian General Strike of 1922, the Russian General Strike of 1905, that kicked off the Russian Revolution and numerous general strikes in Spain, um, many occurring well after Rocker, Rocker's death in 1958, so he was continually proven correct. Rocker, however, really detests the idea that you can achieve a socialist society by simply having a general strike for a few days, which is historically been attributed attributed to anarcho-syndicalist thought. Of course, the ruling class will be much more sympathetic to workers as they come to understand what they lose every day that the strike continues. They fear extremes. So they will make as many few concessions as possible to end this strike and then try to reverse as many of those when the workers go back. The bourgeois is organized as a class against the workers. So why would the workers not do the same thing? The bourgeois understands their class interests and they're ready to work with one another. When the workers of the world apply similar methods of maybe refusal to pay taxes, to, to boycott and organize, they're vilified instead. A general strike also tends to involve the military. Anti-militarist propaganda and armed resistance was a personal favorite when it came to the CNT. Rocker states, quote, where the military in small groups faces a determined people fighting for its freedom, there always exists the possibility that at least a part of the soldiers will reach some inner insight and comprehend that, after all, it's their own parents and brothers at whom they are pointing their weapons, unquote. Of course, the military-industrial complex, especially in the U.S., is an unstoppable propaganda machine of unlimited wealth and resources, so... It's not unreasonable to see how soldiers may be blinded by that uh, very simple moral rationale. That's why you have to harass your local military recruiter when they send you unsolicited text messages and emails, cyberbully their Twitter and LinkedIn accounts. I, I added mine on, on LinkedIn and she stopped, so I think it worked. Um, I, I, I did find her Twitter. It no, it worked. It worked. Find your find your local military recruiter's Twitter. 
Finally, if the U.S. protests of summer 2020 have taught us anything, it's that police can stop 10,000 person protests, no issue. The boycott is also a very effective tool, even going so far as to put a big dent in German exports after products from the Third Reich were internationally boycotted. Sabotage is also very effective, unlawful, but effective. Laws aren't usually aligned with, aren't necessarily um, aligned with morality, obviously. The rationale here with a sabotage is that bad wages gets you bad work. And if everyone simultaneously purposely does their job poorly, it's easier and more cost-effective for the employer to meet the striker's demands than fire the entire workforce and uh, spend time hiring and then training untrained scabs. Supply chains are such that a slowdown in exactly the right place can bring a large portion of even a national corporation to a standstill. Unfortunately, the people who might know this right place are usually not um, pro-laborers, but the point still stands. The sit-down, in my humble opinion, is one of the more ingenious methods of the protest. Workers will sit in their places of work, a factory for instance, and and not work and refuse to move. This way, scabs cannot come in and replace them because they're occupying the, the factory, the place where they work. They may also combine this with the sabotage of machines so that work may be slowed even if they're forcibly removed from the premises. And uh, just a just a fucking cool piece of history. Um, sometimes, miraculously, strikes even generate unlikely allies. Uh, when the UK's favorite gender-neutral bathroom and former Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher sequestered funds from a local miners' union during their strike in the mid-80s, the queer community formed the LGSM, or the Lesbians and Gays Support the Miners, to raise over $22,000 in the 80s, so even more now, uh, in support of the families of the striking miners. They also held an awesome benefit concert called Pits and Perverts, which helped to cement the National Union of Mine Workers, the union they were supporting, as a block of the most vocal opponents uh, of Thatcher's criminalization of homosexuality, attending pride parades, and leading the support for resolutions of the Labor Party to cement the promotion of LGBT rights as part of their platform. These people weren't inspired to do this by any sort of theory they read, but by a natural desire to support their fellow worker. Uh, Rocker asserts that man cannot even think about attaining a higher level of thinking without first securing a certain level of material standard of living, which it makes sense to me. How can you begin to understand and develop theories of why society is the way it is if you're too busy trying to survive? Uh, This is summarized best in a quote by Juan Bravo Murillo, saying, We need no men who can think among the workers. We need beasts of toil. Unfortunately, employers have tactics of their own um, to combat these uh, worker methods. In the same way that employees can use a social strike to turn public opinion against employers for not providing fair working conditions, public opinion can also be turned against the employees themselves. Stories in the bourgeois press of glass baked into bread or farmhands poisoning milk can easily sway public opinion whether there's truth to them or not. If lots of people start receiving messed up Amazon packages, do you think they're going to say, oh, this is because the workers aren't being paid adequately given bathroom breaks or do you think they're going to think like i paid for this i deserve i deserve to have it 
right? They're, they're not going to align with the workers. I think it's just probably going to make Tucker Carlson's job a lot easier. Employers can also employ sabotage by destroying their own products in order to artificially manipulate prices when they overproduce. Rocker also cites the irony of countries producing weapons for other countries who may eventually turn against the country that the, these weapons were produced in. This is something, obviously, that Rocker gets completely wrong, as the CIA has never armed a group of rebels to fight the Soviet Union in another country, only to have those rebels later wage a war, again, uh, led by one of the men from that rebel group for almost 20 years. And that hypothetical war may or may not be still occurring, and Rambo 3 may or may not be explicitly dedicated to this group in their opening title sequence. The most important thing in Rocker's view on growing anarcho-syndicalist fervor amongst workers is to not let the movement be corrupted by catchy but empty platitudes, that all energy must come from the workers themselves. This way, you don't have politicians tweeting, healthcare is a right, right before cashing that sweet Pfizer check and voting against anything that remotely resembles a public option. I'll wrap this up with a little bit of labor history from around the world. In France, the founding of the CGT, the General Confederation of Labor, was the final straw for political socialism, as labor unions at the time would walk over each other during strikes as the strike breakers. Belonging to a union or syndicate of workers doesn't mean that you're all organized as a specific club. If you're going to organize to not assist other unions in trouble, or at the very least not actively work against them, then you're in a club, not a union. The CGT declared itself independent from all political parties for this reason. However, not all members were necessarily revolutionary socialists. A good portion of their members did not label themselves as anarchists, but nonetheless recognized the futility, if not outright harm, of relying on political parties to accomplish meaningful goals. While this was happening in France, the USA was putting together the IWW, our Industrial Workers of the World. The movement helped to gain the eight-hour workday, fortunately, but was, as Rocker put it, bogged down spiritually. The creation of the IWW was assisted in, assisted in the morale, but that was eventually hurt by the start of World War I, and as I spoke about previously, uh, the start of a war can really um, put a kink in things, obviously. CGT uh, wanted the German and Austro-Hungarian labor unions to prevent this, to try to prevent the start of World War II by stopping production of weapons, but German workers refused, which Rocker attributes to their apparent disinterest in mass general action. In World War I, Russia, of course, suffered the greatest number of casualties, save for Germany. We're going to skip over a lot of history here, but the thing to understand is that following the war and the Russian Revolution, the Bolshevists were in charge. At the time of the founding of the Third International, uh, Vladimir Lenin realized he needed the support of socialist parties around the world, and syndicalists and anarcho-syndicalists were among those represented at the Congress. Per Rocker, the sole purpose of the Third International was for the Bolsheviks to extend their international reach, something that the syndicalists had no interest in assisting with. Uh, a man named Lasovsky, commissioner of the Communist International, proposed a motion to make a separate organization that was in a, an alliance of international trade unions that was still subordinate to communist leadership. Obviously, this was rejected unanimously by all syndicalist factions. 
1920, a syndicalist conference was held in Berlin and several points were agreed upon, the most important being the adoption of an axiom that they would be independent from all political parties. Following that, following that was a Congress in December 1922 that included a number of countries from, uh, from around Europe and North America. Central Alliance of Russian Trade Unions also sent a delegate here to try to prevent the Congress from being called, then just dipped when he realized, yeah, that's not happening. The Congress unanimously decided to found the International Workingmen's Association as an international alliance of trade unions of the countries present. Chief among these unions was the Spanish CNT, as it had existed since 1910 and counted over a million members per, per rockers count and still exists today. But, I mean, other sources I found estimates the membership of the CNT at the time to be around two and a half million. But regardless, it even still exists today with around 50,000 active members. It's pretty easy to end this whole episode with a quote and even easier when that quote happens to be happens to beautifully sum up syndicalism because it's a declaration from that 1922 Congress. So I'm just going to read that. Quote, Revolutionary syndicalism is the confirmed enemy of every form of economic and social monopoly and aims at its abolition by means of economic communes and administrative organs of field and factory workers on the basis of a free system of councils, entirely liberated from subordination to any government or political party. Against the politics of the state and of parties, it erects the economic organization of labor. Against the government of men, it sets up the management of things. Consequently, it has for its object not the conquest of political power, but the abolition of every state function in social life. It considers that, along with the monopoly of property, should disappear also the monopoly of domination, and that any form of the state, including the dictatorship of the proletariat, will always be the creator of new monopolies and new privileges. It can never be an instrument of liberation, unquote. What do you think, Sharkus? So I, I, I do, one of like the big things with various like schools of anarchy that has always like troubled me is, is that there's a lot of thought that gets put into post-revolution and there's a lot of talk about the revolution but I, I sometimes feel very unconvinced because I, I, I feel like humans need some kind of a structure. It doesn't have to be like an authoritarian structure, but some kind of a structure to organize through uh, and around. And I've always found syndicalism to be one of the more compelling schools of anarchist thought because the union, you know, for all its flaws, really is an organizing structure um, that you could realistically use to you know, get shit done. And that, that's something that's been shown in history, how effective unions have been in getting um, concessions from like, various states. Um, and, 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 you know, like, at the end of the day, like, the history of socialist revolutions, the history of anarchist thought is still fairly new. And so the whole like idea of like, oh, well, you know, successful revolutions have mostly been Marxist. Like, yeah, that's mostly true so far. But, you know, yeah, like I said, we're it's very much preliminary. And so I, I do think there's a lot of validity to the idea that we should be organizing away from the state. But still have organizations that we can 
use. That we're, we're not just like floating, uh, especially in this like horrifically atomized state that we find ourselves in today, where we don't inherently have any organizations. They have to be built before we can use them. One of the things that um, uh, you, that you just mentioned that I really liked about this this text was that Rocker specifically alludes to um, criticisms of anarcho anarchism in general that no state does not mean no organization and that no one really believes that the day after a socialist revolution happens that everything is immediately going to be perfect that preparation of absolutely needs to be made that it can't just be an emotional like takeover of of, of the means and then everything is hunky-dory of course not thing things are going to take time and um I also I, I haven't been totally convinced by the um, dictatorship of the proletariat uh, theory in in past texts, but he he does he does do a great job at convincing that power absolute power corrupts absolutely, um, and it, and it really it really spurred that idea in me, and is another reason why I'd absolutely recommend reading this book yourself. It's only 140 pages, and he writes with, with beautiful prose and delves into a lot of history. So I'd wholeheartedly recommend it for anyone interested. And it's the, uh, and it's, you, you can also, uh, you can also learn much more about syndicalism by playing the uh, historian approved politics simulator that is the Hearts of Iron 4 mod Kaiserreich. What is this? I don't play video games. Oh. Most people who've heard of syndicalism, uh, it seems, uh, hear about it through... Uh, it's, it's one of the political factions you can play as in Hearts of Iron 4. Uh, in a mod called Kaiserreich, which is a alternative World War II in, an, in, an, in a universe in which Germany won't World War I. And um, Britain and France and I think Northern Italy are like all syndicalist nations now. That's beautiful. I might have yeah. to. I might have to start doing that. Weren't we going to play a video game potentially on a stream or something that was similar to that? No, the video game I wanted to play on stream was a uh, was a uh, Hard Space Shipbreaker because you play as a shipbreaker, but like it's like it's like it's like a cyberpunk type game where it's like super duper futuristic, but you're also just dealing with the same structures of like capitalist exploitation. Uh, as you did, as we do now, and as we did, you know, for the last two centuries. Amazing. Okay, well, if anyone listening to this podcast wants us to play something like that, we might consider it in the future. Let us know. Did you love it? Did you hate it? Let us know in the comments on this YouTube video when it goes up on our YouTube channel, um, on Reddit when we put this up on our subreddit, r slash Pod. Uh, on Twitter when we post it, um, on our Twitter at We Read Theory Pod. Do you wish and, we just stayed dead and in jail for the January 6th riot? Yeah, I'd also like to hear your opinions about that. Should I be incarcerated? The jury's still out. No pun intended. If you say yes, you're not allowed to listen to the podcast anymore because you're not a leftist. Actually, everyone's legally required to listen to this podcast, so they have no choice. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts on anchor.fm, on 
Pocket Cast on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts. We're not on Stitcher. We're not on. <laughs> we're not on Stitcher. And, you can bully Alex on Twitter and make him do your homework like the nerd he is. I'm not gonna confirm or deny that, um, but yeah, I, I will do your homework. Actually, I, I will not confirm or deny the nerd part. <laughs> and I also want to give a quick shout out to everyone listening to this. Thank you guys for sticking around. Uh, really appreciate it. While we while we sort out our personal lives, um, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, Mark, any closing notes? More to come, baby. Love you guys.